Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Compositional Podcast. Um, I am your host, Noon. I'm an engineer here at Tweak, um, and I do mostly Haskell, but I also have a, a very strong interest in quantum computing. So I'm exceptionally excited today to welcome our guest, uh, Chris Grenade, who works at Microsoft. So Chris, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, no, thank you. And I'm uh, excited to be here as well. Um, I'm uh, Chris Grenade. My pronouns are they, them. Uh, and I've been working at Microsoft now on the quantum systems team for a little over four years. Uh, mostly I work on uh, the Q-sharp uh, standard libraries, um, as well as more recently working on things like the open system simulator that we put out there to uh, help you simulate uh, noisy quantum systems as well as uh, ideal uh, noiseless ones. Um, before joining Microsoft, did my postdoc at University of Sydney uh, and my PhD in quantum computing, both on uh, how you learn properties of quantum devices from the classical data you get back that, from them. So uh, a lot of statistical characterization. Yeah, that sounds really, really, really cool. Um, so maybe just to kind of warm up here, kind of like what got you excited about the field of like how did you get into <laughs> quantum computing and quantum mechanics? How did how did how did you get into all that? You know, it's kind of funny because I, it, you know, that's one of the few kinds of questions around that sort of area that I actually have a very concrete answer to. I can remember the moment, um, but you know, when I was an undergrad, I couldn't really make up my mind what to study. I was doing multiple majors in computer science, mathematics, physics, just to buy time until I could make up my mind. <laughs> Very um, nice. <laughs> and, you know, this was at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, so it's not like a huge school. It's not somewhere where we get a lot of necessarily exposure in the same sense. You know, not a lot of people come to Alaska to talk about stuff. But Robin Blumkahoot is from Alaska originally. And so when he came back to visit family one time, he gave a talk at University of Alaska Fairbanks about quantum computing. And I remember sitting in the audience and being like, wait, you can do all three. I don't have to make up my mind. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean, that was kind of where I got started th realizing that this was a way to really actually use everything that I kind of cared about all it wants to be able to say, look, here's a way of computing that doesn't look like anything else we've ever seen before. Yeah, that's real. I, I had a similar, I don't quite remember the moment I got excited about quantum computing, but I distinctly remember having a similar feeling where I was studying physics and I had done programming and then I learned about quantum computing and I was like, this is great. I can do programming and physics. <laughs> and it was a really very exciting moment. So that's funny. You had a similar feeling. Is that when you started programming as well? Like you were doing, you started at university doing your degree? So, I mean, I've been programming in one way or another since uh, uh, I was about six or seven. Um, there is a, you know, mag science magazine for kids that I, I think it was three to one contact, but I really distinctly remember as a kid uh, enjoying it a lot because they had little exercises at the back of each issue that were little programming exercises you could do 
in basic, you know, the basic interpreter that just came with DOS. Um, and they were simple enough that as a six or seven year old, I forget exactly, I may not have understood really what programming was in some sense, but I could type things in and I could mess <laughs> around with and, um, you know, so I don't know when that kind of switched from being a thing I do at the back of magazines to, yeah, I, I, I program, <laughs> uh, probably early universities as good a place as any, um, you know, I did internships and things like that, uh, throughout high school and stuff like that that kind of explored that interest but i think it yeah no i mean learning some of the more formal um kinds of computer science things i think was really uh, uh, to your point earlier like eye-opening like hey there's a lot here you know i mean i remember even though there wasn't a formal class on it like just how much people were excited to learn haskell as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier you know, and giving that a try and being like, hey, this looks very different from anything that I've seen before. Let's dig into that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of fun when you get that vision of something that looks like quite different from what you know, and then you get pretty excited and then you can follow it for a while. So I'm like kind of really curious to kind of explore your um your career and how you got got to where you are so so it looks like did you do after finishing you know kind of discovering your love of quantum computing it looks like you went down a research path for a while so so what did That's you right. kind of what what gauged your interest there like what kind of sparked your interest yeah no so that's a good question i i'm trying to think because I, I did my master's um, at Perimeter Institute, so I was uh, part of the Perimeter Scholars International program. And that was a bit unusual in terms of master's programs in Canada uh, in a couple ways. One, it was 10 months long, so it was really accelerated. And the way that they accelerated that was to really focus on preparing you for research more than doing research. Um, so in that sense, it was a coursework master's. Um, so I really only started to kind of explore, you know, research a little bit later on into PhD. Uh, and there I was one of the like few sort of theory oriented students in a mostly experimental group. And so that meant a lot of, you know, the work around PhD was going into the lab to help fill magnets and maintain, um, you know, lab equipment and stuff like that. But it also meant a lot of, the work around PhD was listening to the problems that experimentalists face and are difficult as they go and try and work with quantum devices. And one of these that kind of just kept coming up was, I have a system, I know what Hamiltonian it should have kind of approximately. So, you know, that's the operator that describes how that system evolves in time, the energy level structure of that system. Um, and it's very common that you'll have a Hamiltonian for a system that you can write down on paper what it should be, but in practice it's not exactly that because, you know, maybe your um, magnetic field isn't quite as strong as you think it is, or there's some inhomogeneity, maybe there's some other system that's interacting with the system that you have that you didn't know about. Uh, maybe there's some misalignment between two different fields that means... You know, things aren't purely along the Z-axis. Yep. And all of these contribute to 
not knowing exactly what your Hamiltonian is. And you really have to know that in order to control your system. Uh, learning the Hamiltonian exactly is also kind of how magnetometry works. As you set up, hey, I, I know the form my Hamiltonian can have, but it depends on this parameter I'd like to learn. So if I learn my Hamiltonian, I learn that parameter. Um, and all of these are places where you're basically asking a classical stats question but you're just motivated by quantum. Um, right. You know, and that was a place where I saw a lot of kind of challenges and experiment. And so it was like, okay, well, this is something I can go look more at. Um, and a lot of, you know, my work there was influenced by a decision very early on. Um, you know, I was... It was uh, my advisor, uh, David Corey, made the suggestion, hey, go talk to this uh, Chris Ferry guy. He knows he knows his stuff. And so I went and talked to uh, Chris a lot, and we kind of talked through this problem of learning Hamiltonians and um, wrote our first paper together on that. And that was kind of what started along that field. And from there, there's a lot of other problems you run into in quantum computing that have a fairly similar flavor of I have a device, I want to know something about it, I'm getting classical data back, so I need to do classical statistics on that data. Um, and broadly that's what uh, is now called quantum characterization, verification, and validation. Right. Maybe not the best name, but anytime somebody comes up with a better name, it doesn't really stick, and so we're kind of <laughs> in some sense stuck with Eh, QCVV. QCVV. Yeah, okay. So if any yeah. listeners out there have got a better a better name, they can send it through. But probably, <laughs> it probably won't be picked up. But j just jumping back to a tangent, I realized something funny, I think, when you were talking about Perimeter Institute. I realized Perimeter Institute, I discovered during my master's that Perimeter Institute had videos of all kind of courses online. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was watching them. And I think I may have seen you in one of them. But one of the, one, it, there was a course that I loved on there. It was something about divergent sequences. And in mm -hmm. maths, you mm -hmm. can have these sequences and you can think about like, well, does this sequence converge to a number like two or does it diverge to some other you know, and never, never uh, result in a finite number at all. And this yeah. lecture that I watched, the lecturer was talking about making divergent sequences converge, <laughs> and it blew my mind. <laughs> I forget how he did it. I love that lecture. But did you go to that? Is that where I saw you? Did I see you in that class? Or Very well may have. I remember that lecture uh, pretty clearly, and it blowing my mind as well. But yeah, no... Uh, Pearsa, I think, was the name of it. Uh, Perimeter Institute Recorded Seminar Archive. That's it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that was top-notch, because I think the guy in that lecture said something that, like stuck in my head so well, which is like divergent sequences, like they know how they want to converge deep inside themselves <laughs> or something like that. It was so funny yeah. to me. I think it was the only one I ever ended up watching. Like I watched every episode of that. I loved it. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. So you enjoyed your time at Perimeter. It sounds like you met you met a lot of people that maybe you even still collaborate with today. Uh yeah, I mean I I definitely did enjoy my time there. Um you know, I have more much more heavily shifted over to the development perspective than research, but you know, still very much kind of maintain that research way of looking at things. Um you know, and I I 
there's certainly challenges that came along with, you know, masters and PhD and everything like that. And I, you know, there's a lot of cultural issues, I think, in physics research, especially that, you know, present their own challenges. But, you know, I, I did get a lot out of it. Um, I, you know, I, some of those lectures, like the one you mentioned, you know, I really appreciated the Quantum Foundation's lectures as well even aside from the kind of philosophical implications of a lot of it, just being able to understand in a little bit more of a formal way what it means when we talk about a state vector or a density operator or something like that. That's, you know, I mean, I'd kind of gotten my start before that looking at chapter one of Nielsen and Chuang, and yeah, there's nothing wrong with that chapter. It's a great chapter, but it really assumes you know a lot coming in. And it sort of leaves you hanging if you don't just already know what a density operator is before you start reading. Um, you know, so having some of that more philosophical grounding to actually give some intuition to what it means when, you know, you see um, density operators all over, that was a really helpful thing for me. Um, so no, I absolutely. I think there's a lot that I got out of that that really does still affect how I think of things now. And so, um, I, I, you you kind of mentioned so just just for some background for 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 all the listeners is Q Sharp is a language for quantum programming development. So development in this kind of quantum mm -hmm. world. And did I understand well that you joined that team around four years ago? Kind of what prompted that move into the dev side of, of quantum computing? So, I mean, I didn't join Microsoft originally thinking that's what would happen. Um, you know, I joined Microsoft as uh, a research software developer. And that kind of came back to what I really enjoyed a lot of time, a lot of in my academic side was going and developing software tools that could help with research you know that it it basically what i kind of found a sort of a longer term pattern doing research in quantum computing was the longer you take any arbitrary research problem the higher the probability that it turns into a programming problem without you noticing <laughs> i see um you know, and there's kind of a simple explanation for that, right? That a lot of uh, the students who are doing research in quantum computing have amazingly good physics backgrounds and math backgrounds, but may not have had access to quite the same sort of programming classes, may not have the same experience in um, kind of formal software development methods. Uh, and so what this means is that the math and the physics parts all wind up being not easy, but the kind of difficult that you know, our curriculum and everything like that really prepare them for. Yeah. But the programming always takes a disproportionate amount of time because that's where we're not doing a great job preparing students to go do research. Totally. Um, you know, so it's, it, it, sometimes it's things like version control, right? You know, that for a long yeah. time, version control um, during my PhD meant, uh, who has the thumb drive today? <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, sometimes it meant, hey, here's the Dropbox link. Uh, let's make sure not to edit the paper at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I'll text you when I'm done editing. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it, and I mean, these things work, but there's always some, you know, friction and things like that that are problems that, you know, have been encountered on the software development side, and there are solutions that exist. Um, 
you know, in that case, something like Git and having GitHub so that you can host things that way instead of having to worry about your own uh, version control server and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, kind of the consistent pattern that I kept running into was, you know, for instance, with that Hamiltonian learning problem I mentioned earlier, like we would go and say, hey, here's the theorem that we uh, uh, proved that shows that, you know, this particular Bayesian method is optimal for the question that you asked. And then the response that you always kind of get is, well, that sounds hard. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just going to go do, you know, the least squares fitting that's built into, you know, MATLAB or uh, LabVIEW or whatever else it, um, I'm analyzing my data with. Um, you know, so having software tools out there kind of built in that do that least squares fitting, even if that's no easier or harder in theory, makes it more accessible to go do least squares fitting. So a number of us collaborated to go make a QInfer. So that was a Python library for doing Bayesian statistics and quantum computing, and really with the idea of trying to make it as easy as possible to sort of remove that barrier so that you can go use this statistical method that, um, you know, fits your problem best. And one of the gaps we saw is there weren't really great ways of working with Bayesian inference for the kinds of problems we cared about. Um, you know, similarly, I remember when uh, Ben Krieger and I were collaborating on um, some error correction problems and wanted to be able to write down like the uh, super operators to describe some noise that was going into that. There wasn't really great software package out there to go do that. Um, you know, we looked around and saw Q-tip handled a lot of what we cared about, but it didn't really handle exactly the super operator kinds of things. So we worked together to go contribute support for that uh, back to Q-tip. And that's been something, um, you know, that I've has made that a lot more useful uh, for me, at least, uh, being able to go back to that and all the improvements they've made in that area since um, that initial contribution. But that's another place where using software development skills, I was able to go make research easier for myself and others, um, you know, in collaboration with other researchers and uh, other software development projects like Qtip. Um, so that was very much the pattern that I kind of took um, and what interested me in joining Microsoft is a research software developer. Go and develop software tools that can help researchers at Microsoft and in the community more broadly while also continuing to do research myself. And that was, you know, we did a number of papers uh, that way um, that, you know, really excited about like operational quantum tomography um, we had another on Bayesian acronym, so backronym, mm -hmm. had to do it. Um, but what kind of, I think, changed was I joined Microsoft shortly before QSharp and the quantum development kit were a thing. Oh, really? Okay. And as QSharp started to become a thing, it was a neat opportunity to join and release, bring... All, all of what I said, that it, all of that that I really cared about of putting tools out in people's hands to make research easier, to make it easier to really get involved in quantum computing, 
this was an opportunity to do so. You know, it's it 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 made at least kind of in my mind a lot it, things a lot more concrete. You know, that it's one of those where I didn't have to then go write my own simulator and then take that and run you know whatever program on if I'm doing research, I can go write out the quantum algorithm as a program and run it and see what answer I get. Um, and a lot of the... So I think that was really a game changer um, and something I was really happy for the opportunity to uh, join and help make happen. You know, I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, sitting there over, you know, take out uh, food and at the conference table, just working with everybody like, all right, what should libraries even look like? What are libraries for a quantum programming language? Um, and, you know, similar such conversations. And Right. So you were, you were, you were really there from the, the kind of the inception of the Q sharp language itself and the QDK. So they both kind of started roughly at the same time. That's interesting. That's right. I'd be really curious about how they kind of approach the language development of Q Sharp because I haven't done heaps with Q Sharp, but I do know it's got it's like quite different from the other Microsoft programming libraries. Like it's certainly its own thing with a whole host yeah. of features. So the first thing I'll say and put out there is um, another member of the Microsoft Quantum program, Alan Geller, put together a wonderful blog post around this about two and a half years ago. And anything I could say there is probably something he said better uh, in that blog post. And that's why we need Q-Sharp. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely point, um, point folks to that. It's a wonderful blog post. Um, but I think, you know, to come back to your point about it being very different, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's partly comes back to that. I, you know, at least personally, I really think of Q-Sharp as and quantum computing more generally is being an example of a kind of accelerator model. You know, so the same way I might use OpenCL to run code on a graphics card or an FPGA or other sort of um, accelerator device attached to my classical computer. You know, there's enough tasks where classical computers are still really good. Um, there's enough quantum algorithms that rely deeply on having classical control. Um, you know, so things like uh, if you look at variational algorithms, you're making a lot of classical decisions between your quantum measurements. If you're looking at um, things like phase estimation, you're making a lot of classical decisions while your qubits are coherent. Um, and in both of those cases, that really points to quantum computers as being something that works alongside your classical computers. And so having a language like Q-sharp that's specialized to deal with how to make class those classical decisions and uh, send quantum instructions all as one kind of consistent, coherent program um, that works alongside existing classical languages, you know, like C Sharp or Python or um, whatever else you'd like to use to control that quantum program with. You know, that fits very nicely in this whole way that we think about OpenCL and PyOpenCL, or CUDA and PyCUDA, where if you have a specialized device, you work, you can work in a language that really makes it easy to work with that device alongside um, and as a part of an application in whatever languages um, you like and are used to and work well in. 
Um, so, I mean, as far as the development of Q-sharp goes, I think the ways in which it's really specialized to help us think about, uh, you know, as you start to see more abstractions for patterns that you could imagine doing classically, but really are much more common in quantum, um, kind of in a quantum domain, um, one of them being within apply blocks, right? You see a lot of times in quantum algorithms, do something, do another thing, undo the first thing. And there are places where you kind of see this in classical computing, especially like graphics, where you might have do this camera transformation, animate this character, undo that camera transformation to get back to rolled coordinates. But, you know, whereas you see that sometimes in classical computing, you see it all the time in quantum computing. Um, and so it really makes sense to elevate that pattern to just being a language feature so I can say within, do first thing, apply, do second thing, and then the compiler will make sure that the uh, inverse of the first thing actually happens uh, and is run correctly. Um, another thing that's really, it, you see in some classical languages, you know, so the, the pattern's already there, but winds up becoming more important in uh, quantum domain is identifying what functions are really pure. So that, that is what functions are deterministic, you give the same input and you always get the same output. Um, because those are the functions that are safe for us to use to say, pick an angle to do a rotation by. Um, if, I, if a function can say, pick a random number and I use that to calculate an angle for a rotation, then when I try and undo that, I might get a different random number and now they don't actually cancel out. So to enable that, Q-sharp has a notion of functions and the notion of operations. So those are uh, subroutines that can act on quantum systems, that can interact with randomness in your classical environment, and things like that, that they are allowed to have side effects. And so that's a distinction that we make uh, at the language level, and it's also one where like our style guide really helps kind of think about that difference, you know, that if functions then have names that are like nouns because really if every time I get past the same input I get the same output that function is just a name for that output so you know it's an it is a thing it is the noun whereas an operation that can have side effects does something yes I see I see yeah that's interesting and I'm curious to know just just going back to what you were saying a bit before about how it's quite a different style. Have you found how have you found communicating that to different people, like to the kind of researchers and to the kind of maybe more classical programmers that have, have just decided to get excited about quantum computing? It can be a challenge, um, and that's part of what um, uh, Sarah Kaiser and I tried to take on with our recent book. Uh, learn quantum computing with Python and Q Sharp. Very nice. Um, because there's there's two very different challenges that I've really noticed you run in there, into there. Um, you know the sort of oh well, this is just more programming. I know how programming works. I'll just go do things exactly like this was a classical computer. You know I can go. Uh, I don't have to worry about um, what measurement might mean for collapsing superposition along the way and then you kind of get the wrong answer and things feel sort of frustrating and surprising yeah. but then at the opposite end it's 
oh, I keep hearing how weird quantum mechanics is, how it's completely different, how I can't think about anything the same way. Yeah. And then just yeah. kind of getting paralyzed and like scared by all of that sort of narrative that we put around things that this is so weird and difficult. No one can do it. And I think kind of the, the happy medium between those two is it is just programming in some sense. But, you know, there's some things that are new and some things that are different. You know, you have to think about quantum effects like superposition and entanglement. But you always have the math you can fall back on, whether you're doing that math on paper, whether you're asking the computer to do that math by using a simulator. That math is still happening, and that's what lets us always predict what's going to happen. And so if, th if things ever don't make intuitive sense, it's okay. You can try things out and build that intuition as you go. Yes, I've I've actually had that lots of conversations with people where they get a bit surprised that you can have a deterministic quantum algorithm, like an algorithm that gives you the right answer. Well, even most of the time, they often hear like the folklore is like, it's totally random, like anything could happen. <laughs> and, and then you have to go like, well, no, it's it's got to be useful. <laughs> like you can yeah. do things. It's possible to do things. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you, so you wrote this book and was that kind of did you say that was in Python as well as Goose Sharp? That's so, right. How, how did you find the writing process? Uh, challenging, but really rewarding. Um, you know, and the challenging there yeah. was, you know, our editor was great. You know, it was great to work with the publishers um, more generally. So that was with Manning Publications. Um, but, you know, that it's a different kind of book than what they're used to uh, <laughs> publishing. It's, you know, in some sense, a little bit more speculative. Um, you know, a lot of their books are around download this thing, work with it, and you will solve a problem, right? Whereas a lot of this is kind of, <laughs> yep. okay, download this thing, work with it a bit, and you learn how you might solve a problem. You know, so part of this, like the book came, at, we finished writing the book before uh, at the Azure Quantum Service put in, uh, came online, so you can actually run things on hardware now. But, you know, even still, like, you know, I've gotten into talks and tutorials and had people raise their hand, like, how can I sort through gigabytes of data and classify it using a quantum machine learning classifier? And it's like, uh, oh, <laughs> can't do that yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so kind of that was, I think, one of the writing challenges was how to both deal with something that's inherently more forward looking. Um, while also kind of stepping back from some of that hype, some of that, because uh, again, kind of there's this dichotomy of it's, oh, everything is right here. Everything is, you know, already entirely scalable. I can just go run things and solve them uh, versus sort of negativity of, well, it's not here yet. Why do I care? Instead of, hey, there is hardware that's available now. There are simulators that are available now, uh, and you can go do things with uh, that hardware and with those simulators, and it's really neat and interesting and useful stuff you can go do. So I, I think that was part uh, that was uh, kind of part of the challenge, and it was really rewarding to be able to put that together and, um, you know, have those conversations with our editor about like, well, how should I even think of this? It's like, well, okay, let's sit down and think about what the right analogy is. Uh, that's another challenge. You know, analogies are really bloody useful for thinking about quantum computing, but every analogy kind of has their limits. And it's really tempting to 
take an analogy and extrapolate beyond where it's useful, and then you kind of trip over it instead of it being a way to help with that intuition. Um, you know, so we had to be really careful about when we introduced an analogy, not taking it too far, making sure that we did so in a context where it was helpful rather than hurtful. Yeah. And I think I think your your comment earlier about kind of trying to show people problems that like something that they can do. I've noticed and this has happened to me myself, my funniest memory is when my friend told me about being able to chat to people in real time on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I said, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> like, why would anyone ever want to do that? <laughs> and I just, I always think about it because I think when people hear something they don't, don't quite know how to use immediately, it just feels like, well, this is n no good. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this. But it's like the whole point is to kind of get a feel for like, well, it's it's like you've got to start thinking about it and we all together have to work out what could be done. Like, I don't know the answer, like, yeah, but let's like have a go. Let's just jump in and have some fun. So I think it's, it can be hard to convince people about that sometimes. And I think, you know, to some extent, it's not really surprising because, you know, we go and talk about the same and I'm guilty of this as anybody else. Uh, you know, the same few algorithms, right? Like, you know, Deutsch Joza we talk about a lot because it addresses what you said earlier about, hey, here's an algorithm where the output is deterministic. Uh, you know, we talk about Grover's algorithm because it's a really neat example of kind of using that same sort of Oracle style thinking to be able to write out search problems. And maybe you then hear about Shor's algorithm, you know, so it's kind of easy to imagine that might be it. But, you know, something we tried to make sure we did with a book was get in some mention of quantum chemistry early. Um, you know, it's not really a chemistry book, so we don't go into huge amounts of depth around, and there are there's so much depth you can get into there. But because that's really different, that's an area that feels more applied, where you can really see, hey, here's how I could actually go use this in practice. Um, and I think the more the community grows, the more we'll start to see problems that look like quantum chemistry. Um, you know, for most of the time I've been involved in quantum computing, it's really been people in quantum algorithms, people in physics, people in, um, you know, the computer science side, going and looking for problems in other fields. And sometimes we find them, sometimes we don't. You know, I, th I think, Pat, there's a friend of mine who told a story. Uh, there was somebody I, who decided they were going to go look for classical problems that were hard and just the right ways to go um, solve with a quantum computer and found, like, this old paper about this unsolvable computational problem in radar imaging and went and came up with a really neat new quantum algorithm to go solve this hard problem that comes, sub-problem that comes up in radar imaging. And was really excited about it and went and found some people who work in radar imaging and asked, hey, is this useful? Is this something you'd use? And it's like, no, that paper's totally out of date. We came up with a better classical algorithm for it decades oh, ago. No. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> you know, so, and none of that is to say the, the quantum computing aspect there isn't useful or anything, but it's kind of hard to go search for other people's problems and try and solve them. But as we make the community bigger, people bring problems to quantum computing and see how that can help. And that's where we really get that broader perspective that's needed to take us from 
algorithms to applications. And I think it's exactly what we've seen with quantum chemistry and what's really been a game changer on that. You know, seeing chemists come in and take their domain knowledge about quantum chemistry and say, here are the problems I actually have. Uh, and here's where I get stuck running them on the classical computer. Um, and that's exactly the kind of shift from algorithms to applications that I'm really excited to see happen in other areas as well. We're starting to see it now happen in machine learning. Um, and it, it's just really exciting to see instead of that kind of push of us going to say, hey, you really should use quantum computing, here you go. Seeing people um, bring problems they care about and join the quantum computing community. Yeah, you you exactly don't want this circumstance where the quantum computing people are sitting there kind of cherry-picking problems that they think they can make easy, but then they don't check them against the best classical algorithm. You kind of want everyone like coming together. And I think, yeah, you're right. Your example of the chemistry people is, is like perfect because I've over the years I've seen... I, probably in the last few year, I, uh, the last year, sorry, I was seeing lots of kind of papers around like, what does it mean to have some kind of chemistry level of accuracy? And I just thought, oh, well, there must be like something really interesting here. Like the quantum computing people thought they could get accuracy in this way, but then the chemistry people went like, actually, we don't care about that. Like, this is what we need. It, it felt to me like that that's something that was happening. And that seems kind of really, really interesting. Absolutely. I, I know that uh, you've done a little bit with uh, integration of QSharp and Python through Jupyter somehow. I don't know the details, but I'd be really interested to hear chat a little bit about that because I haven't seen, I think something I'm really passionate about is, as you've kind of said, is like the developer tooling of quantum algorithms. Right. And I just haven't seen like, so I think you've done some interesting stuff or, or the team has done some interesting stuff with Jupyter integration. So I'd be keen to hear, hear about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, so it kind of comes back to what I mentioned earlier about accelerator model, like QSharp is, you know, a language where, uh, that I'm really proud of, you know, what I've done to help enable, um, you know, the work that I've done on libraries and on Python integration. Um, it's a great language for working with quantum computing. Um, and it works great alongside classical languages. Um, and if you're working in quantum computing, Python's a great choice for going and working with tools like QSharp. Um, you know, so we, we, we kind of faced a, a bit of a problem with that of like, we initially launched the QDK with uh, C-sharp support. Um, and C-sharp's a really great language. I love it. Um, you know, you can easily use Q-sharp from F-sharp as well. So, you know, and a lot of the Q-sharp compiler is even written in F-sharp. Uh, there's enough uh, functional programming love on the team that, you know, that was a really good fit. But we were kind of then stuck low with, okay, we really want to make Python a thing too. Um, and exactly as you say, we the way we kind of came around to doing that is we also wanted to have Q-sharp notebooks for Q-sharp to be a really first-class Jupyter language so that you can use notebooks directly with Q-sharp so that we can... It, it, because, I mean, we also don't want to say, you must use Python, right? There's a lot of love for Python out there, but not everybody works in Python either. So, you know, being able to say, whatever language you like, 
let's set that aside for a moment and focus just on the quantum part and have a notebook to help you do that. Um, and so that's the IQ Sharp kernel that provides uh, Q Sharp support for the Jupyter ecosystem. But when you get right down to it, what that's doing is it's communicating code to the Q Sharp compiler and the Q Sharp simu uh, the uh, simulators provided with the QDK using the Jupyter protocol. Well, if you're in Python, the Jupyter client package is also written in Python and does a really great job at communicating with Jupyter kernels. Um, so when you work with a Q Sharp package uh, for Python, uh, what that does is it launches the IQ Sharp kernel in the background, and you can go see all the different pieces that go into that in our repository on GitHub. Uh, it's Microsoft slash IQ Sharp. Um, but it launches that IQ Sharp kernel in the background and communicates the code that you want to run from your Python host over to um, at Jupyter kernel. Uh, so if you run, for instance, your Python in Jupyter Notebook, there's then the IPython kernel running and the IQ Sharp kernel running and communicating to each other over Jupyter protocol. Um, and that that's allowed us to really reuse a lot of infrastructure between Q Sharp notebooks and Python interoperability. And that infrastructure can include like rich display outputs. It's really neat to be able to say somewhere in your quantum program, hey, tell me, the, it, go dump what inf diagnostic information you have. And when I run on the simulator, that gives me a nice HTML table of uh, the internal state of the simulator. And when I run on hardware, that can be silently stripped out. Um, you know, so that, that can be a really neat then diagnostic tool. And that's enabled by having that sort of um, integration provided by that interoperability. Uh, and sort of building on that, we've recently put out there where you can actually capture those diagnostics that are generated by your QSharp program in your Python host program and automatically turn them into Q-tip objects. Um, you know, so at one point I was, you know, talking about randomized benchmarking and uh, somebody asked, well, why do you get that exponential decay and could actually sample many different sequences, get the state back out as a Q-tip object, average over that and show, because you get this sort of um, depolarizing noise that uh, means your state at right before measurement is initially mixed. Uh, and that was really something that I was enabled by having that sort of integration available to say, give me that diagnostic as a Q-tip object that I can go continue my work with on the Python side. Yeah, that's a nice level of kind of interoperability that, that sounds really nice um i got a question that may be interest to maybe of interest to some of the regular listeners of, of compositional so um do you have a feeling have you have you given much thought to like where kind of type theory or 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 that kind of thinking might fit into the q sharp or quantum landscape is this something you've thought about at all or? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of others in the community who have, uh, you know, been working on answering exactly those kinds of questions. Um, I, type theory for um, <laughs> quantum computing, there's a lot of really open, interesting questions, a lot of neat ideas there, uh, as well as neat connections you can make out to other parts of, um, you know, kind of quantum foundations and um, from there. But as far as you know, how that affects Q sharp, where we landed at is uh, we 
we really want things to be usable first and foremost, right? Um, and so we kind of, it, a qubit at that point is an opaque type that all that the Q-sharp language knows about is that you can apply instructions to a qubit value. Um, and that already gets, you know, maybe at that point I don't really have a type to tell me about how entangled that is with something else or, you know, some of the other ideas we're starting to really see come out of the, um, you know, formal type theory thinking about. But I can use features like user-defined types, so that effectively lets me name a record type, to be able to build up higher-level abstractions on top of, hey, I want these qubits to be interpreted as an integer, so I will wrap them in a record type that indicates that they are to be interpreted as an integer, or this register should be interpreted as a fixed point number. Yeah. Um, oh, that's cool. So, I mean, it, yeah. there's a lot of really neat stuff out there in type theory, but at the end of, the, to describe all of this, but at the end of the day, you know, where we landed at is really much more kind of practically motivated around how do types look like in kind of classical languages and what are some useful things you can do and it, it's something we very much, um, at, at least I find very interesting. I, I, you know, I really loved reading about, like, I'm trying, the name's escaping me now. It's univalent. Uh, oh, the homotopy type theory. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, got that book on my shelf and absolutely love reading about it and all the just amazing things you can do with expressing math in terms of types instead of sets. Yeah. Like, that's really bloody neat. And at the same time, you know, we don't want to sit there and say, you have to understand homotopy type theory to be able to <laughs> get started, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so that kind of puts us somewhere a little bit more practical. It, but on the other hand, there's um, enough things that are extensible about the Q-sharp language through attributes and through compiler extensions and things like that, that if somebody has a really neat type theory they want to bring to quantum computing, there are ways to integrate that uh, and extend uh, that way. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, okay, so I got a couple more questions just to wrap up here, but I was having a look um, on your blog actually today, and I noticed, I think it must have been under a blog about like key skills to have to mm -hmm. do quantum computing. But one of them you mentioned that I, go, I was very curious about was empathy. Absolutely. You, you mentioned empathy as a key skill, so I'd be really curious to hear hear a bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, part of my goal with that post is, you know, you hear a lot of things that are just almost downright gatekeeping about, well, you must have this much math, you must have this much programming experience, you must know this language and this language. And it's a really tempting kind of way to think in some ways, because we can always imagine ways that, well, this problem would be easier if you had a little bit more math skill. You know, it's, it's not yeah. wrong, but it's also not really right, you know, because we don't go and say... Uh, with anything else, really, that you have to be a master in literally all ways of thinking about a problem before you can go and start to work yes. with it. Like, yeah. sure, I can imagine that if you, you know, knew group theory really well, that there's a lot of things that would get easier. But that doesn't mean you literally have to understand all of group theory to get started. That's just... That's gatekeeping. Yeah, no, nor does it mean you can't you 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 can't contribute. It's like exactly. you can contribute in different ways. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's where empathy really comes in. It's you know everybody's coming from a different spot as they learn, 
they're coming with a different background and they're bringing something different to this community um you know and it's really difficult to interact with people and to support them and to learn from them if you don't have some empathy f with where they're coming from where they might be getting stuck why that might be the same it not be the same place as where you got stuck we've really focused on one way to learn quantum computing and it's not even a bad way it's actually yeah. a pretty reasonable way but it's not the only reasonable way. It's not the only good way. And it's not the only way that works for folks. Um, it is a way amongst many. And I think that kind of focuses an example of where we could be practicing more empathy and could be really trying to understand where different people are coming from, what kinds of ways they may be, you know, already thinking in that might be challenging or that really enable new perspectives on problems that we've been stuck with. Um, and ultimately, even aside from all that, why are we building quantum computers if it's not because they're useful to people? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, yes. and so having some empathy with the problems that people run into, the problems people are trying to solve, uh, the people who want to solve them. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's critical to what we're doing. And it's something I, I really wanted to try and highlight with that post. Some of the skills people don't talk about, I, you know, there's m paths through quantum computing where maybe you don't understand the math initially and that's OK. Come on, you know, make the computer do the math. Yeah. But I don't see a path to getting involved in quantum computing that doesn't involve empathizing for others in the community. Yeah. No, that's very nice. And yeah, that's that's very very nicely said. Um, okay, so for for a last question here, um, I'm I'm kind of curious to know, like, w what kind of research you find particularly exciting, particularly exciting, or alternatively, like, kind of what are your hopes and dreams for like the future of the kind of the quantum, the quantum world? Like, what are you excited about over the next five to ten years? Oh goodness. I mean, in some sense, I'm not really sure, right? Because, you know, we've seen so much transformation even in just the past five to ten years. It's kind of difficult to imagine what the next five to ten could look like. Totally. Um, you know, I think the things that have really excited me in the past, as I mentioned, are really around where we can use uh, classical statistical methods to really improve um, how we learn about and work with quantum systems. Um, you know, and it's been really exciting to see all of that um, progress to the point where, yeah, now it's one of those where, yeah, you just run an experiment, you go learn the state of your system. You know, we've used the same kind of thinking to build extremely precise sensors. I brought up magnetometry as an example earlier. Um, I think some of the things that really excite me going forward are, you know, I think the biggest thing that excites me going forward is, uh, you know, what I alluded to earlier, which is people bringing problems from other fields, um, you know, broadening from the really amazing applications we see now in chemistry and machine learning as people bring problems that we haven't thought of before and see how the sorts of pieces and algorithms that we put together to, um, it understand parts of chemistry and machine learning applications, how those can be used to solve entirely different applications and what pieces we might still need to build, what new algorithms, what new 
ways of thinking about those algorithms can help us get there. So I think that's really what excites me is watching this community grow, um, working with the community to bring more people in, welcome them, and just seeing what kinds of applications we can go solve with that broader thinking that comes from really building out the community. Yeah. yeah. And on that, on that topic, actually, just to wrap up, do you have any kind of links or places you would direct people to go um, if they want to get involved in the community and, and just kind of check it out? Absolutely. Um, you know, then I can't recommend enough the uh, Unitary Fund uh, Discord server. Um, so Unitary Fund, it's uh, in a nonprofit dedicated to open source software in the quantum space. Um, and uh, my co-author on the book, uh, Sarah Kaiser, she's done a lot of work in putting together, uh, you know, Discord community where people can go talk about things that are exciting to them as a part of uh, open source quantum computing. And it's been really neat to see how that's taken off and grown and how many different projects uh, use that as a space to collaborate. Um, similarly, the QSharp community Discord server um, is a great place to go. I think there's, we highlighted a few uh, others in our book as well, but I think I've, I've personally been blown away by seeing how Discord has really enabled broadening that community. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I mean, I've seen the Unitary Fund community kind of start from maybe not quite the start, but early on, and I've really been amazed with how well it's been organized and kind of all the stuff that ha happens around. It's probably the best run community I've ever seen, so it's really good. Thanks so much for, for chatting to us today. It's been really nice to hear hear about your history um, and, and kind of what, what you've worked on. So thanks, Chris. Absolutely, and thank you for having me here. It's been wonderful uh, to have the chance to talk and share some of what excites me about uh, quantum computing. So thank you. Thank you.